The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swatting clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. As many of you know, during Advent, we, uh, the pastors at Grace DC, rotate. And uh, last Sunday, Pastor Russ from Mosaic came and kicked things off for us. And we're looking at not Luke chapter 2, but Genesis 3 tonight. So I'm calling an audible, and uh, we're going to park it there and uh, look at various Old Testament birth narratives that sort of frame up uh, the birth of Christ and sort of adds texture and color so that we begin to understand the richness there is to the words that indeed this king has come, this Christ has come. And um, so we're not going to be, sorry, uh, looking at Luke chapter 2 for those of you who were sort of anticipating the you know, angels, Mary, and all of that stuff, maybe uh, next year, but we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, okay? Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for this time. We ask that you will come and take these words and apply to our hearts. We know that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and we confess that we need to hear from you. You are the incarnate word. So, Lord, come and give yourself to us now and give us faith to receive you in Christ's name. Amen. My relationship with Father Time is complicated. In recent years, uh, I turned 40 a couple of years ago, uh, I've grown in my respect for Father Time. Here's what I mean. In my mind, the gap between the 20-something me and the 40-something me is not significant. Sure, there are some minor discrepancies here and there, but pretty much the same, right? Like the popular phrase, anything you can do, I can do better. Boy, was I wrong. You see, I've been running these days. That's mistake number one. The first time I ran a few weeks ago, I, the back of my mouth, the teeth, those teeth, back, they hurt. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Some of you are nodding your heads. because I know you're 40-something. Right? We're in good company. And I was cramping up in places I didn't know could cramp up. And my legs felt so heavy, I, I, I asked myself, like, did gravity get stronger? Like, what's going on? 
You see, the, the point is this. The more I try to be a 20-something me, the more I realize I am not a 20-something me. And what's true physically, at least of me, is true for all of us spiritually. The more I try, the more we try to be a good person, the more we realize that we are not and we cannot be a good person. This is what I call the moral gap. There is a gap between what I believe is good, true, and beautiful, and then there's the other side, the reality I find myself in. And you might think, well, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I think I'm a pretty decent person overall. And let me ask you, have you actually tried living out the golden rule to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love others as yourself? I don't know you personally, but I'm willing to bet that you're not going to make it past the first hour. How do I know? Because I can't. Which begs the question, was it always this way? Was it always this way? The Bible says no. Then what happened? The Bible answers this question with a story, a story of God's redemption in four chapters. Chapter 1, creation. Chapter 2, fall. Chapter 3, redemption. And lastly, restoration or consummation. And here in Genesis chapter 3, which was read to us earlier in the evening, we begin to understand how things got to be the way they are. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and let's look at two things. First, the death of sin, and secondly, the hope of promise. The death of sin. Let's first address the elephant in the room. The beginning chapters of Genesis prompt many big questions. Questions about God, creation, humanity, and sin. And we don't have time to go into all the details because really all of them could be a sermon in and of themselves. But let me say a few words about the historicity of the account that we just read in Genesis 3. Some people in recent history have said that this is not an historical account, but it's just that, a story. Story to explain how things got to be the way they are, but we shouldn't put too much stock in it. Well, you already sense the problem with that sort of interpretation of Genesis chapter 3, don't you? That creates all sorts of theological questions and problems. For example, without a historical Adam and Eve and without a historical fall, the doctrine of original sin that says that this is how we became fallen as human beings and how we're born into what the Bible says, total depravity, that all of us are tainted with sin, becomes problematic. And not to mention God's judgment and the ensuing costly sacrifice to redeem us from sin that really never happened. Well, Eden was more than a pristine garden. As we read through Genesis 2 and 3, we realize that it was actually a temple, a place, a holy place where God and man came together in fellowship, in communion with one another. And instead of casting the serpent out from the garden temple, 
Adam and Eve, they entertain the proposition to be like God. And they begin to imagine what it would be like to have their eyes open to know good and evil, just as God does, and they eventually eat from the forbidden tree. And here's the irony, okay? The wrinkle to this tragic story. Because the Bible tells us that a tree, in a symbolic sense, is a place of judgment. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, Cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. And later in the book of Judges, we're told that Deborah judged all of Israel under a tree. And later in the New Testament, we read that Christ received God's judgment on a tree, on the cross. So there, in the garden, at a tree, as a serpent made his presence known, Adam should have casted him aside, out from this holy temple, Rather, they begin to listen. They entertain the thought, and they give in. And with that, the tenor of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the blessing and the pleasure of God change in Genesis 3 to curse and wrath of God. And Adam and Eve are about to enter a whole new world, a world of pain, disappointment, and hardship. What is going on here? In short, all that is wrong with the world is because of sin. A theologian, Cornelius Platinka, once said, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. And that's exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 3. First, there is social isolation. They not only hid from God, but they hid from each other. Sin always divides. And there is psychological distortion. When our understanding of God is compromised, when that is distorted, our understanding of self and other becomes distorted. Why? As John Calvin, a theologian from many centuries ago said, all knowledge begins with the knowledge of God. Then there's emotional distress. Adam and Eve felt guilt, shame, and fear for the first time, and they didn't have words or even category to understand this. So what did they do? They instinctively reach out for something, anything, to cover themselves. Then there's vocational frustration. Work is not cursed. Rather, work is cursed, and now our efforts are frustrated. And finally, there's spiritual alienation. Relationship with God has been severed. We're no longer in relationship with him. Adam and Eve are not running to greet God, but they're running away to hide from God. You add all this up, and the bottom line is simply this. Sin leads to death. James chapter 1 verse 15 says, sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. It looks so good. It appeals to our desires, but eventually it leads to spiritual, emotional, and ultimately physical death. And this is life outside of Eden. 
C.S. Lewis once referred to this as the Shadowlands, and in the Shadowlands, sin taints everything, including our virtue. The good things, the noble things that we do have been tainted by sin. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. Sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? And I know the temptation is to sort of leapfrog from here to the gospel as quickly as possible, but I think there is wisdom to letting this sort of sit and simmer in our heart. Because only when we begin to understand the depth of sin that resides in our own heart can we then appreciate the goodness, the beauty, and the hope that is offered to us in Christ. And praise God, God has not left us to ourselves, but he has left many witnesses. We know the heavens declare the glory of God, but he put something a lot closer to our hearts than the heavens. You see, our longing for the good, true, and beautiful confirm what C.S. Lewis insightfully once said, that you and I must have been created for another world. Our longing for reconciliation, especially in times like today, as people divide over philosophies and politics, candidates, our longing to see people come together in peace says something about our longing ultimately for God. And our longing for mercy and justice to reign in the city says a whole lot about our longing for God, who is the ultimate expression of mercy and justice. And our longing for human flourishing, not only for the elite, the 1%, but for everyone, regardless of their background and their story, to flourish says a lot about our longing for God in whom, in whose kingdom, we can experience true flourishing. Thank God the fall is not the end of the story. Our Bible would be very short, right? But thank God it's not the end of the story. Can you imagine if the Bible ended here? We would be left then to turn to ourselves and to others for salvation. But God has not done that. So let's then turn to our second point, the hope of promise. In the midst of sin and death, hope remains. Hope remains. Theologians refer to verse 15 as the first pronouncement of the good news, the gospel that God has done something for us, and it sort of frames up the rest of the Bible. The placement of these words spoken, the word of promise, of hope, is worth noting. The promise comes to us not at a high point, Otherwise, it would be a reward, something they earned, but it comes to us at a low point. Adam and Eve got caught red-handed. You know what this tells us? It says God's promise to us, the promise to do good, is not conditioned upon our merit. And we know this theologically, but practically and functionally, we often go back to our day, our week, even our month, to sort of add things up to see if we measure up. And if we do, we feel very good about, our, about ourselves. 
And if we don't, we beat ourselves over the head. But God's promise to do good is not conditioned upon our merit. Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 39. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know the song, Santa Claus is coming to town, right? And some of you have been blasting this ever since uh, you put away your turkey on Thanksgiving Day. He's making a list and checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. I don't know why he knows that. Okay, it's like kind of creepy. Like why? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, I used to love this song. And then I became a Christian. And I realized this is like (laughs) anti-gospel. You see, Jesus is going to come back to town. He is. And he's got a list. The book of Revelation speaks to that. But that list is not for those who are good and deserving. It's for those who know they're not good, who know they're not deserving, and so they come humbly trusting that he is. You see, in the midst of everything that was going on in first century, hope entered the world, and his name is Jesus. You see how Advent catches us off guard? And I love what Pastor Duke Kwan from Meridian Hill wrote. And I think that's the whole purpose and point of Advent. We're just now getting past turkey and ham and stuffing. And then we got to wake up and get ready for Advent. And we come to church like, oh my goodness, I'm not ready for this. And neither was the first century world. With all the goings on, they were not ready to receive her king. But he came unannounced, maybe, to bring the good news that he comes to those who are not ready for him, who will never be ready for him. But don't let his humble beginnings fool you. That whole thing of manger and cattle and other animals, no birthday, don't let that fool you. He is no ordinary baby. You see, hundreds of years earlier, Prophet Isaiah said these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. He is going to be a king and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And here, this is what Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We read through the gospel narratives and we get to places like the Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion, and we wonder if he's going to make it out unscathed. 
Is he going to come out victorious? And then we read through the crucifixion narrative and we wonder, is, this, is he going to make it past this? And we get to Easter, first Easter morning, and we wonder, what's going to happen? Is he going to rise from the dead as he promised? And there's a little bit of doubt in all of us, at least for those of us reading it, it for the first time. But here Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord refers to God's passion for his glory. His unwavering commitment to exalt his name, which includes the salvation of his people. You know what all this means? This means the moment the gospel was first Proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3, Christ's victory was guaranteed. There was never doubt that Christ would fulfill these words spoken to us. That he will crush the head of the serpent. And that he would secure our victory, ushering in his kingdom. So that you and I, those who were once alienated, those who rebelled against him, We'll come back home. Genesis 3 uses two imageries to guarantee Christ's victory. One we know of, right? The passage says the women's offering, offspring, I'm sorry, will crush the serpent's head. The second one, the lesser known one, is in verse 14. Let me read it for us. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This is not, as Pastor Tim Keller once said, a Hebrew mythology explaining how the snake lost its legs. Okay? This phrase, eating dust, is a sign of defeat. We use this language even today, don't we? My daughter, Lydia, and I, uh, we ran... 5K this morning for girls on the run. You know, I, I never ran that much in my life. Like, never. First, from start to finish. My body's in shock still. I, I think it's still trying to process what happened. But in preparing for this run, okay, my, my, my daughter would ask, like, Daddy, are you sure you want to do this? I don't know if you could do this. And she expressed time and time again her concern that her daddy couldn't run a 5K. And so was I. I was very concerned that I couldn't do it. I was telling my wife earlier this week, you know, preaching is one thing, but running the 5K is stressful. Like I was counting down to this Sunday morning. I'm like, I don't know if I could do it. They're going to have to cart me off that track. I don't know if I could do it. And uh, my, my daughter's concerns were true. I mean, she would say, Dad, I don't, know if I, could, I don't know if I could see you doing this because I don't ever see you exercise. <laughs> well, there's a good reason for that. It's because I never exercise. That's why you don't see me <laughs> exercising. So I promised her one day, I said, let's, let's go. Okay, let's, let's go and do a practice run. I, I wanted to see how good she was and sort of, you know, the pace and all that stuff. 
And uh, without hesitation, she said, oh, you better get ready, Daddy. You better get ready to eat my dust. <laughs> that lit a fire in my stomach. I mean, I was, I, this pride, this, you know, I don't know where it came from, but it came. And ever since that conversation, guess who's been running regularly, rain or shine? Lydia, of course. <laughs> yeah. She was going to make sure that I eat her dust. And let me just say, after having run the 5K this morning, dust has this kind of fine aftertaste to it. <laughs> I, I, I love what it says here in verse 14. You will eat my dust. You know what God is saying? You're already lost. You're already defeated. And I love the picture in Revelation when Jesus shows up for the final battle. Did you catch this? After all the, the seals, the squirrels, all that stuff, Jesus shows up to the final battle scene, not geared up for war, but it says he's wearing fine linen. The dude is dressed to kill. He's not going to war. Why? Because the victory's already won. He's going to claim the victory that was won on the cross. And what would the mode of this victory be? We're given a hint. In verse 7, the man and his wife sewed fig leaf to cover themselves. What does that mean? It means they were looking for a savior. Someone, something to save them from their shame, their fear. And we do that very same thing, don't we? We turn to a career, to a relationship, to accomplishments, to a polished resume. We turn to these things to save us. And God knows that these things cannot save us. He knows it better than us. And we read in verse 21, God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. How do you get garments of skin? You have to sacrifice an animal. There has to be death. You see, God provides salvation in the form of a blood sacrifice. And here we're given a hint that one day our king will come into this world to not only crush the serpent's head, but he would do that by willingly taking our place on the cross as a blood sacrifice so that through his death, that we may receive life. This is the good news. So if you're looking into Christian faith and you're wondering what, what makes Christianity different from all the other major religions in the world, I would say this. All the religions in the world will say you simply have to be good enough. Bottom line, you have to be good enough. Christianity says no, you will never be good enough. 
And that's why he came into the world to offer himself so that you and I would know the Father's heart, his love, his longing to have a relationship with us. And to all those who profess that we are not good enough, that Christ clothes us with his righteousness, with his perfect righteousness. So when the Father sees us even now, he sees us as perfect. This is what Advent is all about. This is what we celebrate every week as we retell the gospel story that our king has come and he will come again. And he will, upon his second coming, finish what he began. So what do we do in the meantime as we anticipate and await his arrival? We are then called, we're called to extend the borders of his kingdom, his kingdom of hope, kingdom of peace, kingdom of love in our homes, in our workplace, in the city, and in this world. We must, as the Bible says, seek first his kingdom. That has to be our priority. Often, if we're not careful, we will seek first our kingdom and our righteousness. It's the very nature of what it means to have sin in us. And it's a constant battle, this tug of war that takes place in our hearts. So we got to, every morning, regularly, commit ourselves to his kingdom and his righteousness, to promote mercy and justice, to apply the balm of love, to mend what is broken, to save what is lost, to restore what is put out of order, and to bring true peace, true shalom to this city so that we as a church not simply say the kingdom has come, but we show that the kingdom has indeed come. But this work has to begin in our hearts first. We cannot commend what we are not first convicted of. And so we have to work hard in the labor of love in bringing the kingdom to our hearts first so that this becomes the reality, the engine that drives us as we think about what it means to bring the kingdom into our workplace, into our city, into this world, that we would do so out of the overflow of the kingdom that is in our hearts. And we have, indeed, a lot of work to do in this city, don't we? We have a lot of work to do in our hearts. But our king is committed, has landed in our hearts, in enemy territory, has, and he's teaching us to lovingly submit ourselves to his humble reign. He wants to serve us. He wants to love us. He wants to make us whole. And I pray that that would be our testimony in this Advent season. And from there, that we would lean into this city. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that our king has come to bring his kingdom into our hearts. And indeed, you have. We see 
the fruits of that work. Lord, we're praying that you would do more. Teach us to lay down our arms, to come in worship before you, so that more and more we will reflect our King. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.